This is the Indiana Deer News Podcast, your number one resource for anything and everything that has to do with the wild deer herd in Indiana. On this episode, we're joined by Mariah Boggess, the current Indiana deer biologist of the state of Indiana, to discuss the eight main DNR proposals that are going before the NRC process, before they become regulations, that impact or are centered around the deer hunting of Indiana. That and a little bit more on this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. I'm your host, Ty Miller, and we are blessed today to be discussing the um, eight main deer proposals from the DNR uh, with Mariah Bogus today, the Indiana deer biologist um, for the state. And so, Mariah, thank you for, for checking back in with us again. If you want to hear more about Mariah's past and what led him to Indiana and everything like that, you can check out episode eight. But thank you for swinging back again. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Ty, I'm happy to be here, and I'm excited to be talking about these proposed rule changes because they've kind of been my baby all year getting them to this point, and I think they have a lot of potential to, to help all hunters in Indiana. Yes, and I know a lot of the listeners, as we work through these, you're going to recognize a lot of these topics because I know um, the first one especially is something that you see circulating the social media. So I'm actually, I'll just read through kind of the eight bullet points, and then we'll go back, swing back through, Mariah, if that's okay with you, and we'll just take them line by line and talk about them. Sounds like a plan. All right. So the proposed, the main eight proposed changes that we're going to discuss today on the episode, there's a lot more and you can check out the show um, notes. There's a link that I'll post there to the uh, got input page where you can read all of them, even the fishery ones, the permit ones, things like that. But the eight that we're going to discuss today are establishing statewide antlerless bag limits, convert county bonus antlerless quotas to county antlerless bag limits, make archery firearms and muzzleloader licenses antlered only, change bonus antlerless deer license to a comprehensive antlerless license, change the deer license bundle bag limit to one antlered and two antlerless deer, bundle crossbows into deer archery license, change the check-in deadline to 24 hours from harvest and then finally remove minimum caliber restrictions on muzzleloaders so i know the first one has been a issue for a lot of people and and me personally it's been kind of an optics thing um you know you got people out there saying well in indiana you can come and shoot over 100 deer which technically legally you could be for so mariah tell us what led to the desire for this proposal of establishing the statewide antlerless bag limit so the primary reason for for the statewide antlerless bag limit, we're we're proposing a limit of six antlerless deer, and and really the the biggest driving factor behind that is public feedback that we've gotten. Um, you know those conversations like you're referring to about how many deer you can shoot legally in Indiana, and and currently for 2021 with our bonus antlerless quotas this year, you could shoot 181. Uh, bonus deer and and that's on top of of course your one buck and and your antler or your archery licenses and muzzleloader licenses and and then um, of course there's other special opportunities in the state and and so you know we we get from time to time folks looking at these numbers and and saying well well how 
how do you expect to manage a deer population when 180 deer can be shot per a hunter or you know back in the day um not not that long ago 10 years ago 2011 and and 2012 you could shoot over 500 bonus deer and and those numbers have dropped down of course as as we've lowered bonus quotas across the state but um, nonetheless that that number should someone actually travel across the state and hunt in every county and in in you know for um for most counties and, and really mostly across the state you would have to hunt on private land so you would have to have a whole lot of permission do a lot of traveling and have a lot of time to shoot that many deer um, but nonetheless it is it, it is an optics thing and it, it definitely um, is something that we get a lot of negative feedback about and, and people feel strongly that that you shouldn't be allowed to shoot that many deer and so the number we're proposing six deer um, isn't going to greatly reduce any anyone's harvest any one hunter's harvest in fact if, if we look at past harvest numbers for the state that's that's all, there's only about 35 hunters um, in some years, even less than 35 hunters that are shooting that many antlerless deer. And the, the truth is that even with this proposal, there will still be an opportunity to shoot that many and, and more antlerless deer um, should you want to seek out those opportunities. So, you know, we still have deer reduction zones. There's state park hunts. There's these um, refuge hunts and, and military hunts. So there's there's still plenty of opportunity in Indiana, but but we definitely realize that there doesn't need to be that level of opportunity across the whole state, especially when folks aren't using it. And it leads to this very negative uh, viewpoint of, of deer management here. So um, essentially, you know, if we have a, a statewide bag limit of six deer, that means that um, for, for most people, you could you could fill the county bag limit maybe in two or three counties and you'd beat your state limit. So to even. Even knowing that, like there's very few people that are probably going to shoot all six antlerless deer because, again, you have to hunt multiple counties to do that. Yep. And looking back, I have the 2019 deer summary up because it was the one that I just had. uh, I was looking through some past ones, and it has the two years. And for those listening, those who harvested seven or more deer, it's less than 0.2%. It's not even a half of a percent of the number of hunters. Um, that this is actually going to impact on average on a year-to-year basis. You're talking like 70 to 100 hunters, roughly. Right, at, at most. And, and you also have to, to take into account when looking at those figures um, that folks will still be allowed to shoot one buck. So they're, they're still allowed seven deer statewide. Yep. Um, so that, that's a lot of deer. And, and so, you know, oh, yeah, you know. you're right. I included seven. So actually, I needed to bump down a whole line. So it's even less than 0.1%. Right. You know, and, and I'll point out too, so so there's, of course, you know, we, we have 50 states in, in the U.S. And, and every state takes a different approach to managing um, big game harvest. And so of the states that have white-tailed deer, there's just about as many antlerless um, harvest systems as there are states that are managing white-tailed deer harvest. And sure. so, you know, it, you look at Indiana's and, and ours is, is very unique. Um, with this bonus antlerless quota system, but there's still states out there that don't even regulate antlerless harvest. I mean, they'll, they'll say, you know, you can only shoot two a day. Um, there, there's still states out there like this. So, I, you know, I think it's a good move for the state, um, but but at, at the moment it is not anticipated to, to drive any change in overall deer harvest. Yep. Um, but if we look around at other states, as far as what we're proposing, the statewide bag limit, um, it, it's very similar to Ohio, you know, as, as far as looking around the neighborhood near us. 
you know, our neighbors to the east. Ohio has a statewide bag limit of six deer. Um, and theirs is just a little bit different in that one of those can be a buck. And so what we're proposing for Indiana would be six antlerless deer plus one buck. Um, whereas Ohio is at six and, and one can be a buck. And then, and then moving on to the next point on your list there, yeah. our, our, our next proposal changes to, uh, to switch away from the bonus antlerless quota to a county bag limit system. Um, and that's also the same as, as what Ohio has right now. So if, if you want a, an idea of what this could look like for Indiana, should it be supported, you can look at o- Ohio's antlerless um, regulatory system. And essentially what they do is they, they publish a map every year that shows how many antlerless deer can be taken in the state. And so we would do the same thing for Indiana. So you can imagine that bonus antlerless quota map that is published now. Of course, there's numbers on that map for each county. And <clears throat> if you look at your respective county and this year, it's, it's probably a one, a two or, or a three. <clears throat> Let's say your county is a two that's two bonus antlerless deer you can shoot right now. However, if, if we were to change to a, a, a county bag limit system, whatever the number on your county would be the true number of deer you could harvest in that county, mm-hmm. regardless of season and regardless of equipment you're hunting with. So if you were hunting in, say, let's say just Brown County, for example, and let's say in a given year the bag limit were three antlerless deer, that would mean that if if you were hunting with a bow, a rifle, a muzzleloader, it doesn't matter which season you're hunting in. Say you're hunting firearm season, you're hunting with a rifle, you could shoot your three does then. Or maybe you want to shoot two in archery or one in archery and, and two in firearms. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't matter. Um, that <laughs> bag limit would just be the same. And, and that's the beauty of this is if we could change to a straight bag limit system, it would be a lot more simple for hunters in Indiana to understand the regulations. And, yep. and really – you know, that's the bottom line with everything we're proposing here is we're trying to make our system more simple because right now we're in, in one of the most complicated um, deer license systems that I know of, at least for white-tailed deer. So I, I think we can make some improvements here. So as an example, to just unpack a little bit, if it didn't make sense, I'll explain it in one little different way. Currently, I, I hunt primarily in Elkhart County. My bonus antlerless quota is two. I can actually go out and harvest two does, two antlerless deer, I should say, in archery season. And then I could legally shoot one in muzzleloader season. So I'm already at three, and I haven't even used a bonus uh, antlerless quota tag. What Mariah is saying is if we go to this county antlerless bag limits and my county is still a two, I could no longer do that because that would be three antlerless deer. The total is the total number of antlerless deer in that county for that hunter to legally take. Um, so it, 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 I, I love it actually, cause it's going to make it much more simple. You know, right now there's a lot of people out there that they don't take the time to be fair, you know, to be critical of them. I don't think guys take the time or gals take the time to read everything that's out there in the regulations, but this just eliminates a lot of confusion that's unnecessary in my opinion. And I think it's a step in the right direction. I think it's also a big improvement. I'll touch on this just a little bit from the management side. Um, th- those bonus antlerless quotas are intended to allow DNR to, to make adjustments to harvest. Should there be um, an issue with a population, um, we can lower the harvest or or raise the harvest. Regardless, it's, it's kind of like the throttle on, on your deer harvest, um, raise or lower. Um, the, the current system we have now, you know, it, it, as you pointed out, Ty, even if we were to drop a county to a, a zero, and, and currently we don't have the need to have any counties at a zero 
Um, but if, if we had a quota, a bonus antlerless quota of zero, um, every hunter in that county can still harvest up to three antlerless deer, r- regardless of what the, the bonus quota system is. So there, there really is a limitation on what can be achieved and, and what can be changed with the current bonus quota system. Um, it, it's, it's set up mostly right now to adjust harvest by firearms hunters. Cause that, that's really the group that it affects the most currently yeah. if, if there's a change in that quota. Um, and, and, it, and it also affects muzzleloader hunters because you only get, you know, one, you only shoot one deer on a muzzleloader license a year. Um, but this, this change would make the bag limit in the, in the future, the, the same for every license holder type. So archery or, or, you know, an archery hunter or firearms hunter. And so it would make changing harvest, making adjustments in harvest through the change in bag limits a lot more straightforward from the regulatory side and, and allow us to actually adjust that harvest should there be a need in the future in a county. Yep. No, I like it. Um, now, I'm assuming as we move kind of so we've touched on the bag limits and such, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of listeners out there out there are going to appreciate it. As we move towards the licenses, I know this was one that, oh my gosh, when people read and the proposals got leaked out there into social media, this third bullet just had people up in arms. Why are you going to make archery, firearms, and muzzleloader licenses antlered only? Um, And we'll probably flow right into bullet point number four, but the key thing that a lot of people missed was those are those specific licenses. There's still going to be bonus antlerless deer options to harvest. Um, especially then as we move into the bundle. But can you start unpacking that and what's the reasoning behind that? Right. Yeah, I, I can do that. And so, you know, if you look at our current regulations and, and, and you read them carefully, the bag limit for firearm season is one buck. And so, and, and this is this is where things are really confusing right now, is, is if you look at firearm season, it, it says one buck. I also, I should add in here, you know, I, I used to be a non-resident and I, I lived in North Carolina. I came up to hunt, you know, over the counter, bought a tag to hunt in Indiana one year. Mm-hmm. And I was so confused with all of this. <laughs> all I was, all I was confident in is that I could shoot a buck with, with my license. Um, in, in reading further into the regulations and, and reading Indiana code and our administrative code and, and the legal documents behind it, you start to unpack the different layers of complexity and so we, we've touched on the bonus antlerless quota, and, and that's like the highest layer of complexity. I would say it's like it's kind of like the pancake on top that just makes it that the really confuses things. But when you dig down below that, you have to take into account the actual the season bag limits. And so right now, archery season is, is a bag limit of two, one of which can be an antler deer. And so um, if you buy archery licenses, you can shoot a buck on archery license or you can also shoot a doe. And, uh, and of course you can, you can keep doing that. So, you know, if you shoot a doe on your first archery license, you can still shoot a buck on the second, or you can shoot a doe. And for muzzleloader season, it's, it's a limit of one and, and that can be either a buck or a doe again. And so that, that, you know, that's, that's pretty understandable, but then you get to firearm season currently, and it's a, a bag limit of, of one antler deer. And, um, and so, this raises a lot of issues. Um, one primary one is that we'll have folks that uh, buy two archery licenses and they check in two antlerless deer on those licenses. So they've, they've taken two does, checked them both in on those archery licenses, and maybe it's mid-October. Well, they are, they're done hunting for a buck until firearm season comes in because they have fulfilled their archery bag limit. And so they, 
they essentially can't hunt during archery season the rest of that season because they have they have filled their archery bag limit. So what we have is this really complex system where each season has its bag limit and it may or may not include those. And then, of course, we have the bonus quote on top of it. So in an effort to make it all streamlined and consistent, we're proposing to change archery licenses, muzzleloader licenses, and, of course, firearms licenses are already antlered only, but uh, changing archery and muzzleloader licenses to being antlered only. And so that would make all of those systems, all of those seasons consistent across. And then in addition to that, the, the county bag limit system would make it very straightforward how many antlerless deer you could take. And so just for, for instance, I'm an archery hunter myself. And so th this is, this is a, a great comparison. You know, right now, if I go and buy one archery license and I go out in the woods, I can shoot a buck or a doe. Now, I don't do that because I do want to harvest does, but if I go out and I take a doe, I'm I'm just sure, I'm paranoid that, that the big buck that I'm after would walk through right after that and I wouldn't have a tag in my pocket. So I always buy two or I'll buy the deer license bundle. But but anyway, that those are my options now. If I want to shoot a buck and a doe, I either buy two archery licenses currently or I buy a deer license bundle. That way I'm always safeguarded in case that second deer that walks by is another one I want to shoot. In the future, if you were an archery hunter and this pro these proposed changes were to take effect and you want to shoot a buck and a doe, you would buy your archery license and you would only, you can only buy one archery license, um, fill one archery license every year. Cause it, it would be your one buck. You buy an archery license and then you would buy a antlerless license and then you could shoot a buck and a doe and the antlerless license would be good all through throughout the year. Um, you could, you could use that antlerless license in any open season. I mean, that archery license would be good for, for archery season. So we would say we would keep that same structure where we have these equipment specific licenses um, for, you know, for these specific seasons, uh, seasons, they would just be good for bucks during that season. And the change in the antlerless license would be that we would no longer call it the bonus antlerless deer license because we wouldn't have a bonus antlerless system. It would just be, it would be a straight doe license. It's just an antlerless license you buy. Um, and you buy however many of those you want to shoot those uh, beginning of the season, and you can use them throughout through throughout the fall. Um, up and until so that, six, if six is approved, six. correct. Yeah. And then <clears throat> then there's another there's another layer here too. We're also proposing for the deer license bundle. So currently it is three deer, one of which may be antlered. So there's a, a an either sex tag in there or license in there. And what we're proposing is to change it to being one buck and two does specific. And so that would take out the option. Essentially, you wouldn't be able to take three does with the deer license bundle anymore. It would have to be a buck and two does. And so to explain the benefit to that, it, it also plays into the benefit of having archery and muzzleloader being uh, buck only. Um, there's a benefit from the management side to all those changes. And that is uh, we use several different indices to track deer populations from year to year so we look at of course through the archer index we we look at deer sighting rates we uh, we look at overall <clears throat> harvest every year we look at deer vehicle collision rates these are all different types of data that we look at to see if there are trends you know essentially is the population decreasing increasing you know do we need to slack off on harvest or, or whatnot well another one of the really one of the most important measurements that we can make to see if, if a population is, is growing is to measure deer hunter success. 
And so that's essentially how many licenses are bought to harvest said animal, whether that's a buck or a doe, and then how many of those hunters are successful. And over time, if hunters are becoming less and less successful, you, you know there's a problem. If they're becoming more and more successful, that's a good indication that the, that the population is growing. And so this is a much better metric for tracking deer populations instead of looking at total harvest. Because if you look at just total harvest, uh, what you're not taking into, the, into account are changes in hunter numbers. And, and so this, this success measurement is, is critical. And to, to be able to measure success, you have to know how many hunters are hunting for bucks and how many hunters are hunting for does. So currently, the only license that we're able to get reliable success data off of are bonus antlerless licenses and, and our, our firearms license. And so that firearms license traditionally in Indiana has been what we've, what we've used as, as our best um, index for, for deer population changes relative to hunter success because we know every licensed buyer who, who purchases a firearms license is hunting for a buck. And they either, they either take that buck or they don't. But the archery licenses we currently sell, when someone purchases one of those, and you know, we can look in the check-in database and see whether or not you know, what percentage of those archery licenses had deer checked in on them, but it doesn't tell us true success because we don't know if those hunters harvested the deer they were um, setting out to harvest when they purchased that license. So this point, the, the deer license bundle change and that change to those archery and muzzleloader licenses actually has incredible implications for deer management in the state. Um, not alone, you know, not, not only the success measurement, but that measure of success also can be used and incorporated into, into population models to take an e even um, more in-depth look at, at population changes. So that would be a really uh, big improvement for, for deer management in the state. And so um, not, you know, Besides the simplification point, I think this would be a really good move for us um, in that change specifically. And I know speaking on behalf of a lot of hunters out there, not even necessarily because I agree with them, but a lot of people don't think, to be quite frank, you guys care about the deer population. You just care whether we're making money for the, the population, which is not true. I know that's not true, but a lot of people do. But those listening that feel that way, like this is a great index and this is your DNR. This is your deer biologist wanting as much data as possible that can help them figure out what truly is happening with the deer herd um, through right. through the data. I mean, this is a great indicator that they do care. They are paying attention and they want more more data, more stuff. We, we harp on this all the time on the podcast. And I know a lot of people probably get sick of it, but like... The more we can give you guys, the better. And this is another way that just greatly assists on the back end of things when analyzing the data to be able to see indicators when, hey, we have an issue starting to pop up. This isn't following the trends that we've been seeing. So I think it's a great move. And uh, while you were giving your archery um, example of, you know, you can harvest uh, a doe, um, but then, you know, a buck might come by or something like that. But to be fair, this goes to the next bullet point, bullet point number uh, six. You are only speaking vertical archery, I'm assuming, because if you're hunting with a crossbow right now, you have to do something else, right? Correct. Yeah. So, again, th this last point concerning licenses is the proposed changes to combine uh, crossbow equipment and archery equipment into one archery license. And, again, 
the reason for for this proposal is 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 simply just to try to simplify things from for, for our hunters. You know, so right now for archery season, of course, you can buy either a crossbow license or an archery license, depending on if you're hunting with a crossbow or a vertical bow, and and that license is legal for that season. And and we've looked at the numbers. There's there's really no reason to uh, to keep these separate. From, from the DNR perspective. And so for hunters, it, it adds another layer of complexity. And, and honestly, from talking to folks about these proposed changes, um, I, I've even talked to some folks who didn't realize that they needed to buy a different license to hunt with a different equipment type in the same season. And so it's, it's another layer of complexity that, again, you know, I talked about we have this, this dough system, then we have these, these specific seasons, and these specific seasons influence what licenses you can use. And of course, firearm season, it doesn't matter if you're hunting with a rifle, a shotgun, a muzzle loader, you use a firearms tag. Um, if you're if you're hunting with the muzzle or if you're hunting muzzleloader season, <clears throat> you have to have, you know, a muzzleloader. But uh, but with archery season, it, it's the only season where we have an archery license that corresponds with the season, but it doesn't cover all of the equipment legal under that season. And that's where it becomes so darn confusing for for everybody. And and so um, that that's why we're proposing combining that uh, and essentially removing a license type. So, you know, folks talk about, you know, the regulatory headaches and all and, and, and complexity. And, and really what we're trying to do here is, I mean, we're proposing to get rid of a license that we have. We're, we're trying to cut down. We're trying to to slim down our, our regulations and just make them more more straightforward for everybody. Yep. As an example, my father, he hunts with both a vertical and a, and a crossbow. It depends on the temperature. Um, his shoulders just don't allow him necessarily to, he loves vertical bow hunting, but he also owns a crossbow, especially when he's hunting ground blinds, especially when it gets cold, when he gets bulky clothing on. I mean, he's had to buy both now for years and it's, it's, it's been something that like, I, I usually run into at least one or two people a year that I educate on that, that they had no clue, um, that what they were doing was essentially illegal. <laughs> um, right. They, they might find in when they might find out when they uh, check their deer in. And I'm sure speaking to a couple conservation buddies of, of mine, I know they said that that's, that's a fairly, it doesn't happen a ton, but it does happen. A fairly common mistake that hunters make is they check in a crossbow as the weapon, but they didn't have that license. They just had an archery license. So, right. Yeah. It, again, it's, um, it's just kind of a, 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 uh, an artifact of having these super complicated regulations is that the more complicated they are, the more, more easily someone can get confused and mm-hmm. by accident violate the law. And, and we're not trying to get people tripped up in the rules. We're trying to make them more simple so that they yep. can actually understand and, and comply with them. And the more simple our rules are allows our wonderful conservation officers and the people at the DNR, you guys to focus on other larger issues. You know, I don't mean to downplay anything, but like, you know, a guy checking in a crossbow harvest, it has to be, um, that was under an archery tag has to be reviewed, place a phone call. There's time wasted when in essence, there probably wasn't a hunter intent to do something illegal. Let, let the focus be on those who are out there really doing the illegal, um, the proactive, nature of illegal i should say we we spend a lot of time at division of fish and wildlife and, and law enforcement we, we spend a lot of time on the phone every fall mm-hmm. answering just answering questions about all of these rules and and honestly a lot of those questions could be avoided if we were to make these changes because a lot of those questions shouldn't have to be asked you know yep. we, we should be able to have regulations simple enough that you can look at them and understand how many deer you're allowed to take um and so 
So, yeah, I mean, that, that's essentially, you know, the, the six points we, we've worked through now are, are essentially the, the package of deer license um, changes that we're proposing. And they're all interrelated because they, they really all start with the antlerless harvest piece. Mm-hmm. And, and so changing that away from that antlerless, that bonus antlerless system, um, you know, it, it requires some changes in our licenses. And while we're not completely overturning all of our, our, our licenses, we're, we're still keeping those equipment specific licenses. We're still keeping the deer license bundle and, and, a, and a specific doe license. Um, we are trying to, to simplify those as much as possible. So uh, if these were to be, um, after, after they're proposed, they're to be supported and eventually made into rule, we would see hunting license structure in Indiana remain similar. It would just have a, quite a few layers of complexity taken out. We, we wouldn't completely turn things upside down. You know, people wouldn't have to relearn a whole new system. There would just be some things that come to light that, that you know, we could remove um, some of these uh, what if kind of scenarios. And, and if, if you're using this, it's this. We can kind of remove some of those inconsistencies. And I think it will be a lot easier for folks to understand. Yep. And we aren't going to get into it on this episode, but for those listening, if you haven't already heard kind of the rulemaking process and how this whole procedure happens, and I'm going to post in the show notes, um, the link, like I said earlier, for you to go and provide your input to those who'll be making the decision, but go back and listen to episode five, um, which is NRC discussions with Sandra Jensen. She kind of, we touch on a lot of different aspects of how rules and regulations are made. And it, it's a wonderful episode if you want to know kind of the, the legal process that all this goes through. Um, she at least was the director of the NRC's division of hearings at that time. I don't know if she still holds that place. Do you know, Mariah? I am not sure. Okay. But, but you bring up a good point, Ty, and, and I should have mentioned this earlier. So we're we're talking right now. It's you know it's end of August, and um, and for folks who do want to comment on these rules, the the what we call got input process is open until September fifteenth, and so uh, we encourage everybody to get on there that, that has an opinion, whether it's supporting or, or critiquing, um, to to leave those opinions on that website because we review all of them. They uh, they all go through uh, internal review here. So I, I've actually been working through some of those already and, and evaluating them and. and we want your input. Yep. And I know once it gets to the NRC level of things, Sandra Jensen was very, she was very adamant to let everybody know every single written email, letter, person who comes, like it, everything gets read. This process is very transparent and they want as much input as possible. So yes, please uh, click on the link in the show notes if you don't already know where it's at. Let them know, you know, whether you're for or against. And, you know, if you can, if you have the time, Go line item by line item, each of these eight points or, or provide the point, you know, and say, yeah, I support this. Just even that small little bit knowing that, hey, this is another Hoosier hunter out there who supports this. Oftentimes, those who support it are just silent. And then you only hear from those who maybe are critiquing it or are negative. I want you guys to hear from everybody, every single person listening, whether you support or don't, um, and provide reasonings as to why. Because maybe you might think of something that – Mariah didn't or other people didn't um you know you're you're kind of the boots on the ground type of reports that they can have so make sure you provide that you have until September 15th like Mariah said um every single person listening even should take just five to ten minutes of your time you know grab a coffee in the morning or something log in and and share your thoughts absolutely so let's move to uh the now oh one quick thing so those first six 
are those kind of bumbled, bundled together? Like, is it going to be like an all or nothing type of a thing? I'm assuming because some of those, if you do one or if one doesn't get support and approved, it would make no sense to do some of the others. Right. Yeah. So they were intent, intended to all go together. Okay. Um, and I'm not saying that there couldn't be some changes within those because I, I do think that there that that definitely could happen, um, and it will be up to the the NRC to see um, how they want to proceed uh, given the public inputs that we that we get um, about them. But yes, some of them definitely are dependent on other changes, and then there are others that could that could be included or excluded um, just depending again on on public input. And then just for those listening, because I don't think neither of us touched on this, and if we did, I apologize. The first year, the first hunting year that this would be applied to, if they passed, or or some of them passed, would be when? Uh, It it would be extremely fast for it to happen 2022. It's much more likely 2023. Okay. Um, Being that these are deer rules, and and there's a lot of them, and it's going to take a lot of uh, deliberation and a lot of internal um, communication in ensuring that that everyone is on the same page, and, and of course the public is comfortable with them. Um, I anticipate it would probably probably be twenty twenty three. Okay, that that was kind of my guess as well. So okay, I think we're ready to move to bullet point number seven, which is one that I I've always kind of appreciated the forty eight hours, especially when I have a long tracking job. Um, but it doesn't. It's been rare. What is kind of the logic? I'm assuming I already know the answer, but if you can unpack it, um, what? So it's changing the uh, check-in deadline essentially to 24 hours from harvest. What are the benefits of that, or the positive reasons as to why this would be more helpful for you guys? Yeah. So this this really came about through discussions with our law enforcement officers, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just something that they pointed out that right now, uh, of course, it takes or, or a hunter has 48 hours to check in a harvest um, a, a after they take that animal. And so um, th- what we're proposing actually is to change that to 24 hours. Uh, so to essentially cut it in half. And, you know, from talking to our law enforcement officers, of course, they, you know, they're out in the field and, and, and a lot, a lot more so than I am, you know, they're, they're out there boots on the ground all fall in yep. um, working cases and, in you know, making sure that everyone's following the rules and, they have communicated to us, you know, it is a limitation on how well that they can um, enforce fish and wildlife rules is, is, you know, when people check in that, that animal. And so specifically this 48 hour rule that we currently have, um, of course, there are some folks out there who, who aren't necessarily uh, hunting legally um, and, and may check in a deer um, illegally. And so 48 hours gives a person a long time to work around the rules. And so, um, you know, that, that could be having their deer checked in by someone who didn't harvest that deer or making that, that carcass disappear. Um, and, you know, and, and so there's, there's nothing to charge. And so, you know, with, with our law enforcement officers, we're, we're trying to improve their ability to in, enforce the rules. And so right now with a 48 hours that there can be a case that, you know, it, it takes them two days before they're even able to legally charge that person because um, that person, you know, it has the right to, to sit on that deer for 47 and a half hours before they check it in. And, and, and that's our rule. And, and so they're, they're completely legal to do that. Um, and, and so for law abiding citizens, it's, it's not a problem, but when it's, folks who are um, breaking the law and, and poaching game um, it it honestly that that rule just makes it a little bit easier for them to 
um, to steal the game from from others. And so um, the proposal is to to cut it to 24. And you know it used to be 24 hours. Yep. Uh, years ago, and and it was it was changed to 48. And that, and that was even that, before the check-in process, if I remember right. We had to correct. go to a tangible site, get our metal tag, and it was 24 right. hours then. This takes less effort, and in essence, we're saying the state's been allowing us to have an extra day. Right. It's uh, so that change was was made shortly before we went to to this online and, and phone mm-hmm. check-in, and so. Yeah, for the longest time, it was you had 24 hours to get it to check station. Um, it, it's never, of course, been easier to check in a deer. Now there there are still physical check stations you can take a deer to, and and we have those um, listed available online. You can go and and look them up specific to your county. So there are still those locations, but then of course having this online check in system, um, you know. It, I, I hunt in, in Hoosier National Forest and State Forest and, and much more of the remote areas of Indiana, I guess as remote as it gets. And I've, I've never been any, anywhere farther than 15 or 20 minute drive from, from you know, cell phone service or, or being able to check in a deer. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to check in a deer immediately um, right there standing next to it. And, I, and, and we realize that's not always the case for everywhere a deer will be harvested. Um, but given that folks do have wet, uh, you know, that internet option. And then they also have a phone in option. Um, and then of course those, those physical check stations, um, that, that 24 hour rule has never been easier to comply with. And, and like, to your point, Ty, you know, it, it used to be 24 hours when it was a whole lot tougher to get a deer um, to a physical check station. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, we, we talked through different ideas that there's again, with all the different states that have some kind of a check-in system, um, most states are going to an electronic system now, and there is a variety of check-in deadlines out there. Um, everything from, you know, just uh, to our west in Illinois, you have to have the deer checked in by 10 p.m. the day that you harvest it. Um, so that that's that's a really strict check-in rule, and, and Kentucky is midnight the day of harvest. Ohio is noon the day after harvest. So even looking at our neighboring states, what we're proposing is not as strict as what those states mm-hmm. have currently. Um, but it is, it's a really big improvement, at least from the enforcement side. And, and that's really the intention of that rule. Yeah. And I, I have two thoughts just for the listeners. One, I have a couple of conservation officer friends, and I know I've heard some stories from them where they went to investigate a check-in, a suspicious check-in. We'll just leave it at that. And the person has been able to just open up the freezer and be like, well, that's the deer. I mean... And what is that conservation officer supposed to do? Um, you know, the person checked it in 47 hours later. The conservation officer wasn't able to get there till the next day. So now you're three days removed. A lot can happen in that time frame. So to speak to kind of the law enforcement side of things, I think it does help our brothers and sisters out there who are trying to keep hunters honest so our hunting community can, can be better, you know, let, remove more of the bad apples because – I think hunters in general are very high quality people. We just have a few people that are making us look bad and this helps um, that. My other thought was, and, and kind of, and you might be able to speak to this Mariah, but you know, I know there's somebody out there right now that has been in a situation, say they gut shot a deer. It's 5 PM. They release the arrow or, or bullet and they know they hit that deer in the gut. Um, a lot of people say, wait, 24, wait until that next evening, you know, especially don't go pursue that gut shot deer. Um, if a hunter finds themselves in a situation where they know they're 24 hours from the point of contact where their weapon was, was fired, 
personally me around hour 23, I'd be calling my local district conservation office and, and just kind of explaining the situation because, hey, if I do find this deer and I check this in, it's going to raise some flags. Um, would that be your recommendation to anybody listening? It's a very atypical situation. There might just be two listeners that this falls into, but um, would that be your recommendation as well? Right. Yeah. If you can communicate, of course, with law enforcement, that is um, the best way to stay on, you know, on the right side of the law, essentially. And if they know you're you're making an effort to recover that deer, um, there, there's there's no case to be made there. Right. You know, yeah. you, you're you, you took the deer, you're trying to find it. Um, and, and unless, you know, of course, some deer are, are lost and some deer yeah. aren't, you know, depending on the shot, some, some deer aren't even, um, you know, they, they won't even die from the shot. They'll recover. And so you, you can't be expected to check that deer in unless you know you have actually taken the deer. And so, again, yeah, I, I think your, your line of reasoning there, Ty, is, is a good one. And that if you're getting close to that, that deadline, communicate with the law enforcement and, um, you know, they, they, they can be a, a very helpful um, kind of support system and just letting them know what's going on and telling them and they'll be understanding. Um, you know, that they understand when someone is trying to do things legally versus when someone is trying to, to you know, navigate the rules and, and be shady about things and, and maybe do something uh, illegally. So if you're contacting them and, and talking about this deer and, and, and trying to over communicate, if anything, that's yep. uh, that's what you need to do. And you're saving them valuable time in the future, because if you don't communicate with them and you check in a deer and the harvest time is 48 hours prior or 36 hours prior. Well, now that's going to cause an investigation, whereas in before, it, you may save that conservation officer that time, um, which sounds like the main motive for getting this uh, bullet point uh, uh, through. So, again, just like all the others, if you support, if you don't, if you want to critique it, um, provide your input to the DNR through that got input section. So we're down to the final one, Mariah. Um, it's removing the minimum caliber restrictions on muzzleloaders uh and and i've had i've seen some great conversations from hunters and to be honest it's caused a lot of education in um the smaller calibers out there that are now entering the field if you will um that do ballistically perform sufficiently to harvest deer so i'm assuming that's kind of the reasoning behind this one it is, yes. So, you know, muzzle loaders of of all firearms or really of all equipment are are so dynamic. There are there are so many layers of complexity that affect how powerful a a firearm is, like a, a muzzleloader specifically. Um, you know, you think about well, one the, the bullet, the weight of the bullet, um, and, and the build of the bullet. Of course, there's such a wide range with muzzleloaders because you have some more traditional muskets that are maybe flintlock or percussion style. Um, that are 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 firing a a ball in, in cloth and um, and with black powder and those are generally lower energy and then you have of course newer and newer firearms that are shooting uh, smokeless powder and, and pyrodex and and they're inline muzzleloaders and and so the the wide range of firearms that this current rule covers um, you know it's 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 tremendous. It's, it's everything from classical flintlock styles and in some of the lower calibers all the way up to higher caliber, new rifle, um, you know, new inline style rifles. And so we we're what we're proposing is to, to, to essentially remove all um, diameter restrictions on muzzleloaders. So, you know, currently per our rules to hunt with a muzzleloading rifle, it has to have a 44 caliber 
um, diameter barrel and, and fire a bullet that's at least 357 in diameter. And then for a muzzleloading handgun, it has to have a 12-inch um, minimum barrel length and then fire a bullet that's that's 44 caliber in diameter out of a, a 50 caliber um, barrel. And so those restrictions, <clears throat> specifically on, on barrel and bullet diameter, um, the, the intention of those back, you know, when they were they were set in place was just to ensure that the firearms being hunted with were powerful enough to take a deer effectively. And, and so that's the the underlying mindset of those rules. But, um, you know, one point before we even really jump into to new technology, one point is that um, that bullet diameter is really not a good measurement of how powerful a muzzleloader is. Uh, like, like I touched on, the type of powder, the type of projectile shooting, those all affect um, the performance as, as well as barrel length and even ignition type. And so if you look at it, um, if you look at ballistic charts for muzzleloaders and, and you look at some of the older style percussion, uh, percussion cap muzzleloaders that are firing just, uh, you know, 30 grains of powder or these really low powder charges, they're intended for for small game they're like uh, people use them for the squirrel hunt and places and, and things like that um those of course aren't as powerful as some of the the larger caliber bullets that are, that are tip or caliber rifles that are typically loaded with more powder however we don't have any restrictions on how much powder must be loaded into a, into a muzzle loader um, or what kind of bullet you have to use or any of that it, it was only set on the diameter of the barrel um, which again it really it, it doesn't have the intended effect on ensuring that firearms are powerful enough because um, it, it's kind of an anti antiquated way to regulate muzzleloaders because of the new technology out there um, for instance there's there's new firearms out on the market that fall below those minimum caliber requirements that we currently have that are far more powerful than even the uh, the 50 caliber inline muzzleloaders we, we've been hunting with for years. And so, of course, as, as technology improves the advances in, in smokeless powder that, that burns hotter and faster and fires a bullet quicker, um, are, are constantly improving how fast a small, a small diameter muzzleloader um, can shoot a bullet and, and improving performance and so what we're seeing is that this rule that that you know was made years ago is has kind of been outdated by technology marching forward um, and even even doing some digging myself um, you kind of alluded to this but digging there are there are even some more traditional style muzzleloaders that fall below the current standards that are pretty powerful and they're more powerful than, than some of the hunting muzzleloaders out there um, that, that are currently legal. So we've looked at this from from that perspective and, and understanding that the current rule is excluding some firearms that are more powerful, uh, a lot more powerful than some of the legal firearms per that rule. And and basically arrive at the fact that, that we think that that limitation on, on diameter should be lifted. And, and, you know, and part of the mindset there is you said this before um there's a hunters are, are good people and, and and so being a hunter you want to make a good shot you want to quickly kill that animal i don't know a single hunter out there that doesn't want to be as effective as they possibly can be and when you go into the woods to take a deer or or any other game there are expectations on you to do that as effectively as possible so that you can make an, an ethical kill 
So whether it's a muzzleloader, a rifle, or, or a bow, you should be practicing a course before season. You should be proficient so that you can consistently, you know, hit um, a, a good group close to the bullseye so that you can actually kill an animal. You also have to know your effective range and whether that's affected by, you know, how steady you are shooting that equipment or if it's the, the power of that equipment. There are all these different factors that are already um, the responsibility of a hunter to quickly kill game. And the diameter of the bullet or the barrel is, is such a small factor of that, um, that we're proposing to just hand that responsibility back to the hunter, um, allow hunters to determine what firearm they're comfortable shooting, how far that they can shoot it. Because, you know, even with all of those factors aside, even when you're out there in the woods and, and you have a deer near you that, that you're wishing to take, you have to wait for the, for the right opportunity. You have to wait until you have a clean shot. So the deer's not walking. Um, there, there are so many decisions that have to be made in the best interest of the animal uh, for a hunter to effectively kill game. Um, and so it, it doesn't make sense for, for, the, for the state to be regulating the diameter of the bullet and the, the muzzle that fires that bullet. Yep. Whether the hunter's using a currently legal muzzleloader and taking bad shots, I'd, I'd rather have a guy using uh, a, a smaller caliber that is just as lethal taking the right shot, even Correct. though that wouldn't be yeah. legal right now. So it is, it, it really is up to, to you and I and every other hunter out there um, it, to be responsible, to be proficient, as you said, and making the right decision. Right. That, that's absolutely the case. And, and, and we're not the, you know, we wouldn't be the only state to ha not have a restriction on muzzleloader um, caliber. There are other states out there that, that have no restrictions. So um, especially with muzzleloaders, when you, when you think about all the factors related to them, it's, it's really no surprise that other state agencies have said the same thing. And um, that those are decisions best left up to the hunter. Since I know the muzzleloader discussion of this last bullet point probably has a few listeners thinking of, um, some of the new technology out there. Mariah, do you know the, I think it was before uh, the NRC last year, I think, that new fire stick um, technology out there for muzzleloaders that the powder's actually inserted from the breech. Are, are those legal in Indiana right now or no? They will be legal this fall during firearm season only. Firearm so they, season the, only, okay. Those muzzleloaders are, are legal to hunt but during firearm season. So you yep. can't use that during bus loader. So similar to like the, uh, I refuse to call them an air. I'm doing air quotes for everybody listening. Bow, like the air bow out there. Um, those as well are legal, but only during firearm season this year as well. Correct. Correct. Yep. Yes. Air guns, essentially, whether it's a, a yeah. considered an air rifle or air bow. Yep. Awesome. Good deal. Well, I think we worked through all of the eight bullet points, and I'll be sure to include uh, kind of the, the slide that I have that you sent me. Um, and I know many people, a few people have emailed me, um, and we're going to touch on a couple different things here right in closing with Mariah, one, one that's kind of a little sad but also exciting on his behalf. Um, but CWD response plan, I know that was kind of leaked out there with the proposals through a lot of people and a lot of speculation was out there. You at one time, Mariah, said you guys are working on something to deliver to everybody that will be available. Is that still a goal? It still is, yeah. So we have um, – I think we're at a place where we're pretty comfortable with the response plan that we have put together. Yeah. And so we're getting ready to move forward with that. Uh, it is my goal to to put out some information or, or informative video that could explain the logic behind that. Excellent. Um, 
that response plan. Excellent. So, and I kind of just hinted at it, but uh, we do have some unfortunate information that Mariah was willing to share. Um, It's kind of out there now. If you, if you keep track of job openings on the DNR's website, um, you probably already know the deer biologist job is now uh, out there and you can apply. So what's going on, Mariah? Yeah. So I uh, accepted the, the deer biologist job in North Carolina, which is my home state. It kind of fell on my lap and um, definitely could not say no to the opportunity. So I will be leaving um, Indiana shortly to pursue that new job. And, you know, I have to say it's, it's bittersweet being a a big time deer hunter. I've, I've really loved my time here and um, I did not expect to be leaving so quickly. Um, However, it's all just came about here recently this summer. And um, I, I, you know, I guess rest easy thinking that the, the, CWD response plan, these rules and everything that has been accomplished in the last year is, is in a lot better place moving forward. Um, and, and I'll be watching all that from afar now, but I, I plan to, to revisit Indiana annually for deer hunting. Um, there's a lot of spots I have picked out that I want to hunt in the future. On behalf of so every I, deer I hunter, though, to be I have to interrupt you really quick. Just don't share with all the North Carolina people that there's good deer hunting here. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm going to tell them there's not a single deer in Indiana. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, um, you know, it, it's, I, I've loved my time here and, and I got to say just for, uh, for DNR and everyone here, I, I, I've, I, it's full of great people. Um, the agency's full of great people and I've really enjoyed working with them. So can't say enough great things about our agency here. Um, so in the meantime, we're in good hands, everybody, you know, Joe is still somewhat actively involved with everything. I'm assuming if you're gone, there's other people that will be willing to step up and, and kind of present the reasoning behind these proposals on behalf of the hunters. There'll be other people that will be taking all the input um, even after you're gone. And, uh, you know, on behalf of all the deer hunters out there, Mariah, uh, Joe kind of set a precedent when we finally filled the role with him. And you've taken the role and, and, and you've continued that on um, as far as your willingness to communicate, your willingness to be transparent, Um it is refreshing. And I know it was something that a lot of hunters uh, can appreciate, even if they don't necessarily agree with every decision that you or Joe have ever made. I know, and I hear people that even are still um, critical of the DNR. They have greatly appreciated everything that you and Joe have done. Um, So thank you for that. And and you will be missed. Well, I appreciate it, Ty. And I've enjoyed getting to know so many fun hunters and, and, and folks in, in the deer hunting organizations here and, and yourself. I've enjoyed being on here and, and I'm glad that you're doing this podcast so that folks can be tied in and hear some of the information um, that, that can be shared from the state. And, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of states don't have that. So I think Indiana hunters are in a really good place. Um, I, I've coming into the job been ver- really impressed with what DNR, you know, through Joe was, was already set up to share. Um, just through our different platforms to share information to, to hunters. And, and we actually have a new one coming soon that I hope we can announce any day now yeah. that will be a, another platform to get information in the hands of our hunters. So, you know, I, I really think that, uh, I think DNR, Indiana, you know, specifically is it's just in a really good place. Yep. And Mariah just hinted at something, folks. Pay attention to that. There's going to be a new interface coming that's going to be awesome. We're all going to love it. Um, just trust me on that at this point. Um, and you'll, I'm sure we'll hear more about that coming out, but Mariah, you know what? I would love to, even if you're going to be gone, I think it would be really neat for Indiana hunters to hear kind of just when you're gone for like a year and you've, you've spent some time in North Carolina, 
um, reflecting back, maybe have you on again for even a short, just a short conversation, 20 to 30 minutes of comparing how is Indiana different than North Carolina and kind of the different challenges and such. I think another perspective is always interesting. So if you're interested in that, stay in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. I think that would be a lot of fun. I, I, I love talking about deer and hunting and management and everything. So I'd, I think we should do that. Excellent. I love it. And, and who knows, maybe someday down the road, I can, I can connect with you. Hoosier national is a great place to hunt. So maybe we can share a, share a trip or two. I hope so. Yeah. I, I hope to be back every year and, and do some hunting here. It's, it's tremendous the opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. Well, if you don't have anything left in closing, Mariah, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. Okay. Awesome. So this has been a great episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. Thank you to Mariah Bogus, not only for just coming on this episode, but for the service that he's provided to every single person who's listening to this and every other deer hunter out there and hunter in general that isn't listening to this. Um, we thank him for that, and we appreciate everything that he's done. We wish him well um, on his, his future journeys in North Carolina. We know he'll be a blessing to them. Um, so if by some stroke of luck a North Carolina resident is listening to this, you're getting a good guy, you're getting a great biologist, and uh, you're going to be very happy um, with, with what you get there. So uh, thank you, Mariah. For those listening, anything that you heard here on the episode today, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me. You can reach out to Mariah. Um, his information is on the DNR website. Um, be sure to check out the link in the show notes to provide your input on the proposals you heard today. And if you happen to be interested in the fisheries or things like that, that link will also list out all the things there and you can provide your input there because this is a deer-centered podcast, but I know a lot of us outdoorsmen, we cross over into all various aspects of things. So be sure to read through the proposals, provide your input, and uh, let your voice be heard. So thank you again, Mariah, for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. God bless everybody and good luck out there this fall.